Welcome to the second episode of More Than You, the podcast of the University Area Commission. I'm Lauren Squires. I am a District 1 Commissioner on the UAC, and I'm the chair of the Community Relations Committee. In this episode, we're going to jump back to 2018 and learn a little bit about the history of the UAC and the neighborhood, and then we'll come back to 2019 and talk about some of the events that happened in the neighborhood this year. So back in March of 2018, the UAC decided to host a zoning forum and invite other area commissions nearby to attend and learn along with us. This was an opportunity for new and old commissioners alike to learn more about zoning, which is really one of the main responsibilities of the commissions is to vote on zoning cases before they go to either the Board of Zoning Adjustments or City Council. As part of that discussion, Doreen Uhaus-Sauer and Pasquale Grotto, who are two of our longtime neighborhood residents and longtime commissioners, uh, gave a little bit of a history lesson about the University Area Commission and its early formations and kind of how that related to development going on in the neighborhood at the time. On the part of the city, as to how much change was going so rapidly, did they allow us to experiment with this, but have never really fully embraced the idea that other neighborhoods were under the extreme development pressure. Of course, now we look around and we see many of the neighborhoods having uh, similar issues that had come up 20 years ago. Do you want to add to that, Pasquale? Yeah, we, uh, we had we had rampant, um, inconsistent development occurring in 1985. Uh, we had just pass, passed the uh, uh, area plan um, 34, and um, it, it didn't do us any good because developers were coming in and just doing whatever the um, AR4 zoning would allow. What happens in the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, is Ohio State announces that its enrollment is going to be projected at 100,000 strong. They hire Perkins and Will to do a master plan for the, uh, for the uh, university. Uh, six tower dorms were proposed, and the development community gets on board, and it says, okay, we're gonna complement what you're doing on Ohio State property. We're going to completely rezone the adjacent properties to a new zoning classification that allows pretty much unlimited density. It was, it was amazing. That starts occurring in the late 70s. Oh, I'm sorry. That starts occurring in the late 50s, early 60s with the rezoning. That results in the Community Association being formed in 1961. It keeps getting worse. Uh, there's a major downzoning in 1978 of uh, key residential areas, uh, but then the development again in the uh, early 1980s just again starts happening. We had uh, one, two, three, four uh, uh, moratoriums. We had legislation. 
passed for certain districts, certain uh, geographies in 1985, 1986, 1987, and then we had a year and a half long moratorium uh, put in place in 1990, which results in the first planning overlay that was instituted as legislation in 1990-92, which really got things under control and established the review board. So uh, we realize ours is a longer and slightly more complicated history than others when it starts with the president of a community association that was newly formed at the time actually having explosives planted under his car uh, by developers. I mean, that was the severity to which it, it had occurred. But uh, we went shopping, quite honestly, as a community <coughs> for Ohio-based models that would pass the Ohio Supreme Court. So we went to Cincinnati and Dayton, we went to other communities, and the one in Cincinnati, and I don't think they've ever fully implemented all of the EQ districts they have on the book, uh, became our model and then it, it morphed into what it is. So it, it is a different model, and I'm sorry that you've got the old timers here that are really <laughs> are really just amazing fonts of knowledge about the history of this area. And another time they shared that history with us last year was on a bus tour that all of the commissioners took around the neighborhood. This was a chance for us to explore all of the neighborhoods that make up what we call the University District. And the first clip I'm going to play here uh, is from when we visited the Circles, part of Denison Place. Uh, and here again you have Doreen and Pasquale sharing some of their knowledge of local history with us. And, Do and Doreen educated me to the fact that there were a number of confectionaries because you needed the sugar in order to make alcohol. So there was a proliferation. watched by federal government. So suddenly mama was making candy and daddy's making beer out the back. Yeah. So if you could imagine, you know, this area, Neal Avenue is the main thoroughfare in the 1830s, 1840s. We had the, the canals in, but we don't get the railroads till the 18, late 1840s. But during that time, you, you have, you know, Neil doing all this development along Neil Avenue. A lot of these homes, the elder Neil had actually built. And because you had horse-drawn vehicles, you had these very large carriage houses behind the buildings. So that's why you're seeing a lot of th this request for the secondary dwelling, which is not legal under R2F or R4 zoning. So these folks have that building there. You could actually have two res residences in a single house, but you can't have two dwelling units on, on the lot. But now, you know, we're saying, well, you know, it makes sense to do that. As you know, we're even allowing folks to build a new garage with a residence on so the- Why is it called carriage house? Where is that? Because it was, it was your carriage. It was your carriage. So they would live above the carriage there too? Or? Uh, yeah. In some cases, like on second, there was a, a, a house that was so large and the caretaker lived up above and it was a wow. carriage house. And literally it has an elevator in it for an early automobile. And wow. he was an automobile oh, aficionado. <laughs> and so, you know, that people would winter their, their early cars downtown. Uh, like at third, across from the old Zettler at third and Main Street, and you didn't use the use the street very much.
So this is one of the circles, what it looks like, and these are actually city parks. That's Susan Keeney. She's the chair of our zoning committee. Interestingly Each enough. Each circle? Each circle is a yeah. city park, yeah. Do we, does each of them have a name? No, but they, they have this circle. Circle one, circle two, circle three. And they kind of have neighbors that take charge of, you know, planting and they do perennials and whatever. This is part of what makes the historic fabric of this neighborhood, the circles area, important to the historic designation because William Neal, the stagecoach king, house used to be where the library is, main library. There are no existing photographs of it. His son's house was up on 15th and Indianola, which is that big Kappa Sig fraternity house, which never looked like that at its time. But the original house is buried within that sort of reconstruction. And then the properties were given to the sons, Henry and Robert. But the daughters, Anne and Elizabeth, got the land. And this was Elizabeth Neal McMillan's property. And so uh, literally within a year after William Neal dies and Ohio State buys the property, 1871, little ads start to appear in the paper. She has platted all this out. She had studied with Frederick Law Olmsted. She never was accredited as a landscape architect because women couldn't be. And the lots, she has designed this whole idea of this series of circles to be able to maximize essentially what is going to be the next big real estate development. And by now we're talking around the early part of the century. No, well, actually 1871, the last part of the 19th, 19th century. And the biggest way into Ohio State was by Neal Avenue, not by High Street. It was the, the roundabout. What is interesting, and I said about that White House, was this is early on. This area is very Appalachian. Almost all of Victorian Village uh, is Appalachian descent by the 1960s. There are three great waves of Appalachian migration into the city. We never acknowledge any of them. The 60s was another huge one after World War II and devastation in terms of uh, housing opportunities for people from West Virginia. Um, I worked with a woman on this street actually who was running essentially what would be the soup kitchen and clothing drive out of her house for other families coming in who were ill-prepared to live here through the winters. The houses were, were falling apart from the fact that a lot of the older, richer families who had commanded this area were just dying out at that point. And so the houses were turning into rental and actually were saved probably by rooming houses and uh, legal or not otherwise. The White House I point out to you is interesting because it's kind of large. Here's one last excerpt from that bus tour. This is Erin Prosser who works at Campus Partners and she is telling us about the new Grant Park development in Wineland Park. Uh, which is on the location of the former Columbus Coated Fabrics Corporation. That, and this side park and, and this side of it, it was parking lots that were served the industrial uses over here. And then, um, I don't know, probably 2006, the City of Columbus and Campus Partners worked with the U.S. Bankruptcy Court to get control of the property. Um, it was back when there was still pork available from Congress. I think Mercy Capter was um, provided some funds around the demolition of all the buildings because they, the Columbus Fire Department had stopped going in because they couldn't assure the safety of their firefighters because people were in there doing up to all kinds of no good and stealing everything out of there, support beams, anything they could grab. Um, so that was done, and then there was this... Uh, brought the Wagenbrenners into the conversation because they had done some remediation and brownfield work on Harrison West at the old vegetable oil or margarine factory. And they came in with really the expertise of getting what at the time was clean Ohio dollars 
and they ended up with 3.5 million and they did the, the remediation here. Um, so you can see the apartments are going up now. If you went down to the south at six, there'll be a park. There's one hot spot they couldn't get clean. Um, so that'll be a park and that will be Joyce Hughes Park. Ultimately, um, yeah, Aww. so this, yeah, and then the wagon runners were able to tell her that prior to Aww. her passing, so she knew so that that was coming. And then um, Dorothy Cromartie was another activist in the neighborhood, and there were, one of the streets back here will be Cromartie Lane. Mm. Um, it turns out that Hughes is a hard one to name a street for because the fire department doesn't like things that have other, otherwise been named, but Cromartie had not been taken, so that was why <laughs> the reason for those two switches. Nice. So you've got all the apartment buildings here that are on the... Um, east side of the Grand Park side, as we go further south, there'll be additional, what the Wagenbrenners have planned for essentially um, row house kind of models. I think they're duplexes, similar mm -hmm. to what they did in Harrison West. And then back to single family houses around the park. Um, there's still a lot of questions about the sites but on Fifth Avenue. They tried three times to get a senior housing project funded by mm -hmm. OFA and it just never got funded. So they are holding on that, and then they did purchase all of this, these pieces here, mm -hmm. which will be additional single families like what we have south and of here. And the rice paddy, right? And they did just purchase the rice paddy, yes. So they don't know what they're doing with that. They have to go in with actual, like, you know, yeah. uh, engineers and After all of that history, let's talk about some things that happened in the neighborhood this year in 2019. You just heard some of the crowd noise outside at SoFest, which was a festival in Sohud held in May of this year. The festival was put on by two CCAD graduates who wanted to showcase all of the great stuff going on in Sohud. There was music at two different venues. There was art on the street. My four-year-old got to paint part of a school bus, which was delightful. Uh, there were vendors and food and cooperation from all of our great local businesses down there at Summit and Hudson. One of the main things going on at SoFest was a bunch of local bands playing. I managed to capture some from hardcore band N Love, that's E-N Love, and here's what they sounded like playing at Wild Goose. That being said, we're in love. Music to move to.
To find out more about NLove, check out Delayed Gratification Records on Bandcamp.com. near OSU's campus recently, you've probably noticed a lot of construction happening specifically around 15th and High. That's going to be a uh, bundle of new buildings that will serve different purposes, and one of those new buildings is going to be the new headquarters for WOSU, the public TV and radio station that is licensed to Ohio State. Back in April of this year, there was a groundbreaking ceremony to usher in construction on the new WOSU building, which I'm going to read here from Ohio State's website, uh, $29 million building, part of the new 15th and High project developed by Campus Partners. It's going to be five floors, 52,000 square feet, uh, completed by early 2021 is the projection. The building will feature an open 2,200-square-foot community studio, an expanded newsroom, broadcast studios, a performance studio, and a state-of-the-art media learning lab. Uh, So here's some clips uh, from that ceremony, starting with uh, Tom Ryland, who is general manager of WOSU. We needed some energy in the room. (laughs) (laughs) We knew it wouldn't rain today after we bought 150 umbrellas for this event. (laughs) That's great. What a great day. Uh, so when I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning, I, I decided to tell a little story. Um, some of you know I have a lot of research about WSU's history. If you go up High Street here about three blocks, take a left on Woodruff, and go about three more blocks on Woodruff, in the early 1920s, there was a groundbreaking there. And there was uh, a picture in the archives of five gentlemen with top hats, dressed to the nines, and they have shovels, and they're, they're making it their own little groundbreaking. One picture survives from that event. That was the first tower of WSU radio, early 1920s, almost 100 years ago. So really, this is, this is an event that's almost a century in the making. It's an incredible legacy, I think, for WSU, its service to this community and to this campus. Very important for all of us. All right. So, one other historic story. When the Fawcett Center opened in 1970, Fawcett Center for Tomorrow opened in 1970. (laughs) We laugh about that internally at the Fawcett Center. With the intention of of, uh, hosting many major conferences through continuing education, for the first time it brought radio and television, WC Radio and Television, together in the same space. It was purposely built to be isolated from the campus, from students, from faculty. The WSU production area and most of the offices were put in the basements, sequestered from campus, sequestered from the community, and as many of our staff realized, sequestered from the light of day. (laughs) You see behind me the stunning design of the new WSU. We're making up for that five decades of darkness <laughs> with an incredible open and transparent building that we're very excited about. More than that, this will be a public space that creates a new model for public media engagement. 
a place where the community, students, and faculty are not only welcome, but involved in learning experiences that are inspiring and perhaps life-changing. Where you're sitting right now is going to be the community studio, the Andy and Sandy Ross community studio, in about 20 minutes. Keith Myers, the Vice President of Planning, Architecture, and Real Estate at Ohio State, and also the CEO of Campus Partners, had this to add. You know, six years ago when we began on the 15th and High project, we started with the property acquisitions. Today seemed like a bit of a fantasy. The first meetings with the campus landlords were tough, um, and they frankly never really got better. Um, but thanks to the perseverance and leadership of Jay Casey and Provost McPeer, President Drake, and members of the Board of Trustees, past and present, we find ourselves here breaking ground on the first building at 15th and High. Of course, that would not have been possible without the hard work and dedication to a dream of a very small team within Campus Partners. Amanda Hofsis, Darren Prosser, Kyle Albert, Oscar Camacho Cabrera, Chris Kimbrell, and Edgar Lampert. They created the vision and they never really lost faith in it. So here we are on the site of a new beginning for WSU and for the University District. You know, it's been said that um, architecture is merely a reflection of its time. That's probably true. But it can also lead and inspire and cha change within a society. Today we live in an age when civic discourse has turned vile and hateful, and when media companies consciously and willingly act as propaganda arms for one political view or the other. It's actually a shameful episode in our country's history, but it's not the first, um, and like the others, it'll pass. But in this difficult atmosphere, Tom has dreamed and Chris has created, and the team from Messer will build a building that can serve as an antidote to this affliction. Open and transparent and centered around the wonderful community studio that Tom previously described and has fought so hard for. This building will be a beacon that can symbolize the recovery and help us rediscover the art of civic discourse. And for that, we have them to thank. So on behalf of Campus Partners, well, I would like to welcome WSU to the University District and to the neighborhood, and most importantly, to the most important corner of all, 15th and I. Thank you. And after the speeches, there was actual physical groundbreaking with hard hats and shovels and lots and lots of applause. Here's the first moment when a group of folks uh, dug those shovels into the ground. For our last story, we exploit the fact that the University District, despite its urban location, has a lot of really cool nature stuff going on. One exciting thing that happened this year is that we got a kayak launch down at Tuttle Park. To celebrate the opening of the launch, the University Community Association and the Tuttle Park Community Recreation Council got together uh, with Olentangy Paddle and organized a neighborhood kayak trip. A bunch of neighbors went down. It was such a gorgeous morning. Unfortunately, I was not in a kayak, uh, but they put in at Tuttle Park and they came out at King Avenue 
and by all accounts, everyone had a great time. The person who had the honor of cutting the ribbon at the launch that day was Joe Motil. He is the president of the Tuttle Park Community Recreation Council, and here's what he had to say uh, about the opening of the launch. were going in me and tom wildman another commissioner on the uac happened to see a beautiful blue heron flying across the sky and here's how excited we were about that it for this episode. I want to thank Doreen Uhas Sauer, Matt Hansen, Aaron Prosser, Pasquale Grotto, Susan Keeney, Joey Mendocino, and N Love, Joe Motil, Tom Ryland, Keith Myers, uh, and Matt Ides for our theme music. A reminder, the University Area Commission meets every third Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. at the Northwood and High Building. Those are public meetings, and we invite anyone and everyone to come see what we are up to. Thanks. See you next time.